Let's pray together. Lord, the words that we have just heard sung, the words that we have read and contemplated together, speak of your cross. It's at your cross that your vengeance fell. Vengeance enough indeed to sink the world to hell. And it's at the cross that your son Christ bore your wrath for us, the sinful race, so that in him we can find a hiding place, a place of welfare, a place of security, a place of hope. And Lord, as we spend a a few moments in your word just now, again, we ask you to take us to the cross so that we'd see more of who you are, more of what you've done for us, and that we would be made worshippers. We pray it in your perfect name. Amen. In his play, No Exit, French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre paints his own picture of hell. And he depicts it as two women and a man who have been doomed to eternal torment entering a room that at first doesn't seem to offer any fear or threaten any harm. But then these three are sentenced to remain there in that same room together forever, without sleep and symbolically without eyelids. All three enter the room with great pretensions about their past. They have great and grand ideas about the kind of people they were and the kind of lives that they led. The man pretends that he was a hero of the revolution. However, as the play goes on, we find out that he was in fact killed in a train wreck when he tried to escape after betraying his comrades in the revolution. Similarly, the women have great and grand notions about the kind of lives that they led, but then as the play goes on, we find that their stories are equally sordid. In the intimacy of the room, in the forced intimacy of that room, all their pretensions fall apart as all their guilty secrets are wrung out. Nothing can be hidden and nothing can be changed. The moral of the play then is delivered to us in the crescendo at the end in this line of doom. You are your life and nothing else. You are your life and nothing else. Is that who you are this morning? Is your identity, my identity, simply a compilation of 10,000 different days? If so, how would you rate your life? A few of us, I imagine, would want to be defined by what we have truly been as opposed to what we meant to be or hope to be yet. Of course, there are perhaps um, highlight moments. We could take some clips, cobble together some moments, paste them together to put our best foot forward. Perhaps I could find uh, my top ten moments that might impress you. Uh, But then, alongside the highlights, there are lowlights. Scenes, episodes, entire seasons that we'd rather erase. Times when we did things we're ashamed to remember. Times we've said things we're embarrassed to recall. Times we thought things that we're glad will never be seen or heard by others. If my top ten moments might impress you, I know that my low light reel would depress you. Are you your life, and nothing else. As it turns out, the Bible actually says that you are. You are your life, 
and nothing else. But perhaps not in the way that we might expect. Having opened his letter with these gospel greetings, Peter now moves into the body of his letter, moves into the meat of what he has to say to his first readers. And he begins with these words, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Three things to notice together briefly from this verse. First of all, notice with me how Peter begins with worship. Peter begins the body of his letter, the main things that he has to say, with these words of worship. You see them there in verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love imagining Peter as he, as he sits down to write this letter. He, he hasn't even made his first point yet, but he still can't contain himself. He can't quite keep it in. His mind and his heart are full of truths that he wants to communicate to his readers. Full of things that he's eager to share. But as soon as he opens his mouth, worship just slips out. Spills out of his mouth. Blessed be God, he says. May God be worshipped and adored and honoured. May God be esteemed and prized and cherished. May God be revered and admired and enjoyed. And this God, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Were it not for Jesus, we wouldn't be able to know God. Anyone who seeks to know God apart from Jesus finds themselves lost in superstition or lost in confusion until there's no hope. But now God can be known. How? Because he has made himself known in this person of his son, Jesus Christ. And don't you love the fact that Peter can't even make his first point without giving God worship? Remember several years ago, it was uh, my wife's birthday, Rosie's birthday, and she's a baker, and she'd asked for this mixer that was this big red mixer, and my knowledge of baking implements ends there, so I can't really tell you anything else about it. Um, but off Caleb, Seamus, and I, my sons and I, off we go to, to fetch this, this mixer, and we buy it, and we put it in the car, and we come back, and just before we go into the house, I, I give the boys the speech that says, boys, this is a birthday present, therefore, it's a surprise. Therefore, it's a secret. Now, how do you keep a secret? You keep a secret by not telling anyone. We're not going to do that. It's a secret. So I just told one person. Right? No, a secret means you tell no one. We will keep this to ourselves. And then on her birthday, she'll open up. She'll see it. She'll be surprised. It will be great. Okay. The boy's going to, okay, got it. Right? We go in the house. We sit down to lunch. And one of them goes, we got you the red mixer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And I'm like, dude, be cool. Like, we just spoke about this, you know? <laughs> Enthusiasm, excitement, joy. Men were, <laughs> the secret just blurted out. And you see how Peter has this childlike enthusiasm? Peter has this childlike joy. He's so full of excitement that praise just blurts out. <laughs> Isn't this instructive for us? That for Peter, theology always leads to doxology. Truth leads to praise. The things that he's going to write to the believers well up in him and first find expression 
in praise to God. Worship is seeing something in God, something glorious and great, something attractive and alluring, something poignant and beautiful, and saying, yes, yes, I love that thing. Truth grips the mind and moves the heart and opens the mouth to say, blessed. And I wonder this morning, if you, if I, I wonder if we are worshiping. I know you're, you're here, okay, or you're online, right? Um, so you're, you're in worship, but that's not my question. <laughs> my question is, are you worshiping? As we reflect upon our liturgy, as we go through our songs and our prayers and our confession and our assurance, are, are you saying, yes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, the life of faith is not the life of cold, metallic ascent. Nothing will benefit your soul. Nothing will remedy your heartache. Nothing will give you strength for today or hope for tomorrow like saying yes to the things of God, to worshiping our God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's point one. But why is Peter so excited? What particularly is causing him to well up in praise? What is the, the red mixer of this passage? The point he's so eager to make? Well, we read, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So point one, Peter worships. Point two, Peter worships because we're born again. Peter worships because we are born again. Now understand that when we, we speak about being born again, we're, we're talking about that profound change that God's grace works in our lives. When we're talking about being born again, we're talking about how grace has impacted our lives because we know that becoming a Christian isn't like a self-improvement program. Becoming a Christian isn't like starting a new diet. You know, uh, I'm doing paleo, right? Um, It's not like starting a new exercise routine. It's not like signing up to a new set of best practices. No, becoming a Christian is a radical change where God takes what was dead and makes it alive. God takes what was dead and makes it alive. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2 when we were what? Dead in trespasses. God made us alive together with Christ. Dead things coming to life. The change is so radical, so sweeping, so deep that Jesus in John 3 says, you must be born again. Being born again is the the picture or the illustration that he uses to communicate to us the profound change that happens when you become a Christian. It's as if he is saying that in our sin we lie dead on the table. And God arrives as that world-class surgeon who alone has the desire and ability to save us. But desire and ability won't save us. Something needs to happen. Something needs to take place. There needs to be an operation. Surgery is necessary. A transplant must occur. And so God cracks our chest and takes out that heart of stone that's been calcified by sin and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And this heart 
beats for God. Beats for God. When we come to, we say, I was dead, but now I'm alive. I have new life. It's as if I've been born again. New birth, being born again. Friends, it's not the, it's not the image for the particularly culty, political, or hypocritical group of Christians. Those crazy born-again types, we are those crazy born-again types. And by definition, every Christian is one of those crazy born-again types. When we speak of being born again, we're talking about the profound change that God's grace works in us, where he takes what was dead and brings it to life. And Peter worships because that profound change has taken place in his life. But there's more than that, isn't there? Yes, point one, Peter worships. Yes, point two, he worships because we're born again. But also point three, Peter worships because we're born again by the gospel. We're born again by the gospel. How is it that this profound change occurs in our lives? What is it that takes you from death to life? Simply, how do you become a Christian? Implicit, of course, in the illustration, in this picture of being born again, is the idea that we are not the active parties in this process. How much did you have to do with your physical birth? Answer, nothing. Nothing. Came about by the conceiving power of your parents and by the labor of your mother. Now, what's implicit in that illustration of being born again is now made explicit here in 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Why are you born again? Let's look at it. According to something you've done, according to something you intend to do, according to something that you promise you'll get to soon? No, according to what? Mercy. And not just mercy, great mercy. Is God merciful? He is great in mercy. (laughs) That's how we're born again. Now, okay, we ask, what was the cause of our new birth? Why was this mercy given? Did we initiate proceedings? Did did we get the ball rolling? Did you get something to get this party started? No, we read, he caused us to be born again. Who's he? It's not me, it's not you. It's not any believer, it's not the apostle, it's God. God caused us to be born again. He's the one who takes the initiative with his mercy. How were you born again? Was it through your own efforts? Was it through your own labor? No, Peter says. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How are you born again? By the gospel. According to mercy, he has caused us through the resurrection. I've seen four children be born. I hope and pray I will not see another. (laughs) But we all know We all know that children are born through labor, effort, pain, blood. Not of their own, but of their mothers. And at the end, a wee cry testifies that there's life. And in the same way, Christians are born again through the labor, effort, pain, and blood 
of another. And not just blood, but death. And not just death, but death on a cross. Jesus died in childbirth. That you and I might be born again. But after death, we read resurrection. We read resurrection, that life belongs to him, and so he can share it with us. That in him is life, and therefore life for all who are united to him by faith. This takes us to our question. Uh, Okay, how do you know if you've been born again? How do you know if you've received this new life? Jesus, the one who came up with this illustration in John chapter 3, the one who told us we must be born again, says in that same context his most famous words. He says, you must be born again, and then he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Born again, bringing belief, leading to life. As a baby's cry testifies to physical life, so the cry of faith testifies to spiritual life. Now, neither cry makes you alive. Neither cry brings about that new birth, but rather both are proof that you're already alive. How do you know if you've been born again? If you have faith in Jesus Christ. You would not have that faith were you not born again. You would not make that cry had you not already been brought to life. And so if a new heart beats within you and if gospel air fills your lungs, then yes, cry. Cry that cry of faith and say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sermon in a sentence. Peter worships because we're born again by the gospel. So let's go back then to that question we started with. Satra said, you are your life and nothing else. Your identity is simply a compilation of 10,000 days. You're defined by your highlight reel. You're defined by your low light reel. Some good, a lot of bad, and a whole lot of ugly. The gospel comes to us and says, he's right. You are your life. And nothing else. This is where your identity lies. But not in the life you've lived. But in the life that you've been given. You are your life and nothing else. Not on the basis of the life you've lived. But on the basis of the life that you've been given. You're defined by your life. But by your new life. You're defined by your new birth. And so when you're exposed not just to the lidless eyes of others, but to the all-seeing gaze of God himself. There's rest in saying, I am my life and nothing else, because in the gospel I could never be any less and I could never be any more. I'm alive in him. And so, we try to forget the movie. We try to forget the highlights and forget the lowlights. We want to fight this tendency that we all have to define ourselves and find our identity on the basis of the things that we have done. 
as opposed to on the basis of what he has done for us. And so we don't think that our achievements, our successes, our triumphs make us any more valuable. And this week, seriously, your disappointments, your failures, your regrets, you think they make you worth any less to God? Our identity is not found in what we have done, but in what he has done for us. In the gospel, you are your life and nothing else. Our identity this morning is we are born again. Next week, we're going to take a look at that part of the verse I skipped over. Did you catch it? Born again to what? Living hope. Living hope. Come back. We'll talk about it. Let's pray. Father, the joy of your saving work was to take dead things and bring them back to life. And that's what you've done in your Son and through him in us. United to him through faith, we too have new life and are born again. Born again that we might breathe in gospel air and cry a cry of faith, calling you blessed for all that you've done for us. Father, we pray that this gospel, this good news, would indeed start to have a controlling power over our identity, over how we conceive of our our very self, that we'd be less focused on the achievements, the successes, the triumphs, less focused on the disappointments, the failures, the regrets, and controlled by your love for us. Father, I, I, I pray too that this gospel would make us a people who worship with childlike enthusiasm to blurt out praise because of your goodness toward us in your Son. These things we pray in his perfect name. Amen.